0: Welcome to episode number 12 of the Piracy Impact podcast from RevuLytics. I'm Michael Goff.
1: And I'm Jason Swan.
0: And Jason, finally we're back together.
1: Back together again.
0: In recording and live in studio. It's a beautiful snowy day here in Waltham. We're sitting by the RevuLytics fireplace. (laughs) And um, had a nice trip out to Worcester, Mass. Talked to John uh, McInnes and Jody McLean from McInnes and McLean. Long-time partners of RevuLytics.
1: Yeah, it's our first duet. That's right. Yeah, the four of us sat down, chatted about their firm. We've been affiliated in some shape or form for a number of years now, and I think they bring a unique perspective to the podcast program.
0: Yeah, this was a good conversation. They talked a lot about laying the groundwork to protect IP rights, um, and a pretty interesting approach.
1: Yeah, I think they have a nice balance of a sales approach, but also mindful of preparing for escalation in the event that the clients want to.
0: Yeah, and they talk a lot about, you know, when you go public with a litigation approach and, you know, wanting to protect, you know, your customers, your your clients' customers from, you know, the competition that's using pirated software. So, an interesting conversation. So, let's get right to it.
1: Welcome to another edition of Piracy Impact. I'm your host, Jason Swan, joined by Michael Goff from Revulytics. And today, we are on the road. We're in Worcester, Massachusetts at McGinnis and McLean. And I'm joined by Jody and John. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks, Jason. It's great to be here. Absolutely.
1: Thanks for having us today. So we wanted to get into a little bit of your background, a little bit of your story. You're a Massachusetts firm, but you cover the United States for IP law, copyright law, patent Mm -hmm. law. If you could just give us a little background on the firm and what you specialize in.
3: Sure. Uh, And I guess I'll start just a quick background uh, on how I got into intellectual property law. Um, initially, uh, I trained uh, in biology. I have a, a biology undergraduate degree, and then I was working in a reference laboratory in Cambridge, uh, Quest Diagnostics, doing toxicology work. Um, got to a point where didn't want my boss's job, didn't necessarily want to move up in that organization, and looked at the law and thought it was actually a perfect fit if I went into intellectual property because there's just so much uh, integration between technology and and that type of law so from the outset going to law school I was I was sold on IP
2: yeah and and my story is is a little different than John's because I was I I pretty much um, you know I I went to uh, engineering school and I had I started at Vanderbilt and then ended up at Worcester Polytech and uh, have uh, my degree in uh, mechanical and biomedical engineering and uh, did a couple of co-ops so similarly to John felt like hmm not sure that I want to do this do one thing for the rest of my life and the law has always been something that interested me um but I you know I pretty much went you know straight to law school and when you spend that time getting an engineering degree, you don't necessarily want to practice family law afterwards. Sure. So uh, patent law was the perfect fit for me. Um, I got my training while in law school at United Technologies, which was fantastic training because I got to work on a whole bunch of different technology. And um, really have spent the you know over 25 years now practicing and, and loving it. Because one of the best things about what we do is we're we're a tech firm that is who we are every attorney here has an engineering or science degree just like john and i do and technology is always changing and the law around it's always changing and um usually the technology is changing faster than the law so the law you know kind of catches up with the technology in a lot of ways.
3: Yeah, and that's why it's it's always gratifying when you can be part of that process, moving the law along. Maybe you have a, a case with an important issue that's undecided because the technology has gotten ahead. We help to educate the courts and uh, hopefully get, uh, you know, a decision that, you know, uh, strengthens IP rights uh, for IP holders.
2: Yeah. And how did you
1: guys start the firm and, and meet each other?
2: So... Um... That's you know, it's it's just a little bit of serendipity, I guess. I was actually out on my own um, working um, and I had started my own practice. And my practice at that point I had done, you know, litigation support, but I do a lot of procurement, you know, patents, especially trademarks, copyrights. And I had a longstanding client that wanted to file a lawsuit in California. And and it was right after I left my law firm that I was a partner at. And I'm like, Really? Now you wanna file a suit? It's me and a paralegal. <laughs> yeah. And so I I did that one and, you know, we, we resolved it and that was good. And then another one came along, and this one was in Texas, and it was a bigger you know, deal. And I said, you know what, I, I need some help. So I reached out to one of my partners who was at uh, the law firm actually that John was at and got the introduction to John. And from the first time we talked on the phone, we we just clicked, and we have similar attitudes about about what to do when we're talking about enforcement, especially in litigation. And, and that basically comes down to we take a, a business pragmatic approach, you know. We always listen to the client and what they're trying to achieve. And before I knew it, John and I were on a plane to Texas for the case and it just took off from there.
3: Yeah, and at the time I was working at a general practice firm, about 50 lawyers, uh, really covered every area of the law. And I had slotted in uh, doing all of the intellectual property litigation work uh, at that firm. And that's when Jody and I met. Um, we started working these cases together. <clears throat> really enjoyed working together. Um, but one of the frustrations was working at that general practice firm. It was hard to bring in, uh, say, you know, mid-sized clients that couldn't necessarily afford that pricing scenario. So we were, we were facing a little bit of frustration on that part and kind of decided that we could do it better uh <laughs> frankly we could do it better i beat
1: around the bush john yeah
3: <laughs> we, exactly but but there's no reason to have a uh you know a, a huge office space in the highest high-rise building in town with a bunch of marble i mean the clients pay for all that stuff yep. we, we keep our overhead low i mean you see our office here i know your listeners can't see it but you know, it's a nice office, but it's it's what we need. Sure. All we need is a place to put ourselves and, and, and work on our cases.
2: Yeah, and, and we leverage technology because we are an IP firm. Yeah. So, you know, we've got, you mentioned we're in Worcester, we have an office in Providence, we have an office in Chicago, all small offices that leverage, you know, technology. And that's and that's what we do because, you know, we are a, a tech law firm. And so, you know, to John's point, uh, you know, you some law firms don't want to take on a case that's worth yep. less than half a million. And, you know, there's plenty of companies out there that are mid-sized, smaller, and and we do the big cases too. But, um, you know, what do those clients do? And so, you know, they come to us.
1: So that's a good segue. So we have plenty of those customers that we know and we talk to, and certainly a lot of them are listeners to this podcast. What advice would you give a technology company on how to embark on intellectual property protection in the U.S.? How do you start that journey?
3: I think, I think this, <laughs> to start, I'll start off and then I'll let Jody jump in here, but it, it really is about taking advantage of all the tools that are available in the United States. We have a, 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 a very mature legal system here, especially on the IP area, as well as a lot of uh, specialized judges that only look at IP cases. Um, and these statutes have been on the books for many years, but they get updated on a regular basis. And they provide the tools that we need to uh, to enforce our client's intellectual property rights, um, but as long as you do the right things ahead of time. so we counsel our clients about getting that protection in place so for instance if they have an innovation that they're working on and they're going to introduce to the public it's absolutely worthwhile looking at getting patent protection on that if you're a photographer or a software engineer there's no question you should be registering your copyrights and um, and on the trademark side if you're using a name to identify your company or your product Absolutely, you should put yourself on record as owning those trademarks. Um, If you get that protection ahead of time, you have enhanced ability to go after infringers and get a just resolution and a quick resolution. If you haven't done that, it's a little bit more of an uphill battle. You can still get your result, but it's it's not as easy and it's not going to be – the fruits of your labor aren't going to be as great at the end of the day unless you – unless you go in there and 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 think about it ahead of time and get that protection
2: so john just gave a very thoughtful answer my answer would have been call us <laughs> no and, and the reason you want to call us and, and get in touch with us or email us is because of everything john just said um so jason i i think you'll you know this from working with us and from john's answer um we counsel our clients. Sure, that's one of the things that we pride ourselves on: getting to know our clients' business and getting to know what solution will work for their business model. Um, a lot of IP attorneys, including us, are very busy people because, again, technology—it's fast-paced, infringements, protection—all of that, you know, happens in mm-hmm. a very quick amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but taking the time to counsel and really get to know your clients and, and be thoughtful about it, which, again, John's response just showed that we do it well, yep. um, is is what we're about. And we recognize that there are differences between, you know, say, European clients and U.S. clients. And in that, the European structure for, say, copyrights and, and going in and getting seizures and things is is different than in the U.S. And you want to have attorneys in the U.S. that know how to leverage the US laws, like like John was saying. And for us, when we have these conversations with clients, they'll often think that they need one thing, and they may, and they may be correct, but we, we try to get to the root of what they're trying to achieve. What is the ultimate business goal here for them? And then we can put a plan together to help them achieve that business goal. And on the one end, there's there's, you know, it may come down to enforcement, you know, either through litigation or just through, um, you know, cease and desist. But before you even get to that, it comes down to, as John was saying, how do you get the protection in the U.S. that you need so that when the time comes, you have all the tools available and there are timing aspects to that. Um, that are different than Europe, that are different than South America, mm-hmm. and that are specific to the U.S. Now, the majority of these things are federal copyright and patent are federal, so it's the same throughout the country, which is why we do work throughout the country because we, you know, we're dealing with federal law here. So um, we keep up to date, and we are specialists. I mean, you know, most attorneys can't say that. Uh, because in the US you're not allowed to but patent attorneys in particular have to pass a separate bar. We are registered, so we are allowed to say, you know, we are a patent firm, we have registered patent attorneys mm-hmm. and in addition to that we do all the other IP as well and that's that's all we do. So
1: when approaching software companies, it sounds like there's a there's a due diligence involved that's consistent. It's not a one-time event. There's a there's an ongoing service if you will to make sure that you've got all of your ducks in a row to protect your own IP. But then let's just assume for this discussion that once that's complete and um, everything's above board, now you might have situations that arise, folks that are stealing your software, misusing your software. What sort of approach or recommendations do you give software companies when they embark on that? Well,
3: let me uh, jump in just uh, what jo- just to jump on what Jody said. it it depends to some degree on what the go- what what goal the client has. So for in, for instance, in some in some places, some software companies will simply want to clear the field. They're not interested in licensing to uh, anyone other than who they already have licensed to. Maybe okay. they have exclusives. Maybe they're not legally allowed to license to anyone else. We need to know that up front because yep. we can take a much stronger approach to that case. Go for a preliminary injunction. Really. Step on the neck, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, other software companies looking at this as an opportunity. If, if someone's out there stealing their software, well, that's an indication of need. Uh, oftentimes, this software is very expensive and has taken years and years and many millions of dollars to develop. And someone's stealing it. And as bad as that sounds, it is an opportunity to go in there and approach them with a, we know you did it. Uh, we need you to stop doing this. Part of this resolution could be you buying a valid license or a number of seats of a valid license. In this regard, we'll be able to promote our clients' uh, business interests, but we do need to know that ahead of time so we know how to approach these targets.
2: Right, and there's, there's a sensitivity here too, Jason, right? Sometimes you're dealing with clients who, um, you know, they haven't done this before, and they, they're not quite sure what to expect. And so we, you know, we give them... That information as well. We mm-hmm. educate. We're very. We we believe again. Part of that counseling that we do is educating the clients on on what to expect. Because, you know, John uh, in particular has heard every excuse in the book uh, when he when he talks to the other side. And something that you know sometimes clients will say, "I can't believe they said that." Or, "Can you believe?" We say, "Yes, we can believe it." As a matter of fact, it's not nearly the most outrageous thing we've heard. <laughs> so, you know, knowing that you know knowing that you need to educate a client too is is part of what we do we listen to what their needs are but we also give the, them the information that they need in order to make a decision you know at the end of the day we're going to give a client you know different approaches that they could take and it's a business decision to decide which approach they want. And a lot of that is determined by some of these factors that John was talking about, including, you know, things like, you know, how much risk do they want to take? How public Mm -hmm. do they want to make this? You know, if they have, um, we've had situations where, Customers are complaining to the software vendor that their competitors are using their software for free and are outbidding them. So maybe they want a very public stance. Yep. Maybe they want a very public lawsuit to be filed so that people back off and understand, we are enforcing, we've got your back clients, customers that are paying for mm-hmm. the legitimate licenses. Um, you know, and, and then we can talk about, okay, what does that public stance look like what are some of the fallout that might yeah. come from that?
1: For our international audience as well as uh, domestically here, you, know, you mentioned specialized judges. You know, could you give us some sense of how U.S. law helps protect IP and, and what sort of strengths or weaknesses maybe the system has in place that you leverage? Okay,
3: that, that, that's a great question. So the specialized judges uh, tend to be, uh, well not tend to be, they're at the appeals court level. Uh, it's it's uh, called the Federal Circuit. So, in the US system, uh, on the federal side, so for federal law, we have uh, district courts in every state that hear trials. Uh, if, if once that trial is, is resolved and there's a judgment, there's the ability to appeal that decision and if it's a patent case or anything related to a patent case and oftentimes the copyright cases are related to patent cases it gets uh, brought up rather than to the appeals court above that district court it goes to washington dc to the federal circuit where they have a panel of judges that only hear technology cases patent cases and and sometimes copyright cases and therefore they can Make the law uh, homogenous across the country.
2: Okay, that's yeah, that's the idea. And and just to kind of piggyback on what John said, so you mentioned patents before, and software. You know, sometimes you do have a patent on it as well as a copyright. If the case starts off with a patent claim in it, then it will get to the Federal Circuit. But if there's no patent claim at all, like if it is purely copyright, then then it won't. It'll go. It'll go the other route. So okay.
3: in Massachusetts, it's just the First Circuit. It right. would go up to the First Circuit. Uh, in other areas of the country, there are other circuit ju- uh, court panels that okay. hear those cases.
2: And and even though. Um, you know there's obviously there's different circuits throughout you know throughout the country um even though they're not technically specialized courts Mm -hmm. certain areas of the country like the ninth Mm -hmm. circuit uh have more copyright cases that they hear than other circuits just by the nature of the industries that are that are in those circuits yep so um so Mm -hmm. when we have we have associates across you know the united states and in particular in the ninth circuit we have someone we work very closely with um so we're able to also advise a client as to if they have a choice where they might want to file.
1: Okay. And you guys have been doing this for many years now. What sort of trends are you seeing uh, today that maybe weren't as prevalent
2: years past or you know where's where's the business headed? So I'm going to I'm going to jump in on that one to start. Um I think the biggest trend uh that we're seeing is that there's more willingness on the copyright side to look at infringement uh, with software and to enforce that um you know music industry and and photography and in those more traditional industries uh you saw a lot more of those cases and and much fewer on the copyright side and i th- uh, dealing with software and I think that's just because of the nature of the software companies themselves, but over the past um the past years, uh, Uh, maybe 10 years, Ten years. I was thinking 10. Yeah. Uh, We've seen more and more enforcement. And as the companies are saying, you know, we need to police, there's too much piracy. There's too much going on here. This is an asset of ours. And it's what our companies build on. More cases have been going to the courts, which means the courts now are becoming more informed about copyright on the software side. And, there's become more uniformity as these cases get appealed and you're seeing those kinds of trends um, and just a, a, an increase on the software side.
3: Absolutely, and the, the courts uh, in the legislature as well have, have started to address uh, a problem that was outstanding, which is this. Um, if you have a copyright infringement case that is worth uh, maybe $10,000 in damages, well, a federal litigation is going to cost more than that, and it was in the past very difficult to be able to get true justice. Uh, to go in and spend, say, fifty, seventy, ninety thousand dollars on a case and recover ten thousand. <laughs> well, you do the math. Yeah. It's not worth it. No. Nope. <laughs> so the statutes evolved, and the, as long as the registrations, and they really emphasize this, and we'll say it over and over and over again, as long as you get your registrations you have remedies available to you and what we call the big stick is the recovery of attorney's fees. So now you have a $10,000 case. You won't be afraid to go to court and assert your rights because at the end of the day, if you're right and you prevail in that case, you are more than likely going to recover all of your attorney's fees.
0: So John, that's actually an interesting point. You know, Jody, you would mentioned, you know, there are a couple of different approaches you guys take with cease and desist letters and litigation. What's the balance between those two approaches these days, and has that changed much over the years?
2: Um, I, I think that, that the balance, again, we always take into account the the client's objectives, right, because different clients have, have different objectives, um, and the strength of the case, of course. So when we're looking at a copyright infringement case, the data that we have on the infringement itself Will often drive um, how aggressive that we can be for the client, and in going after the attorney's fees. Um, to just kind of circle back on what John said, there's two really important things. One is having the U.S. registrations, because if you try to enforce a foreign registration in the U.S., the attorney's fees aren't aren't going to be um, aren't going to be available to you. Um, and in getting those registrations, getting them within three months of the publication of the work, because there are time limits. And then having um, being able to get attorney's fees also relies on the reasonableness of the other side's position and when you have the kind of data that we've been able to get uh for uh for our clients through uh revulytics uh, data then that takes down the reasonableness of the other side's position so that's interesting too
0: so the ability to use that data before you even send that first cease and desist letter uh, how much does that obviate the need for discovery down the road and sort of reduce costs for the clients and sort of accelerate that process? That was a good word, Michael. Yeah, <laughs> that, that was that a good was. word. <laughs> that was impressive. And, and,
3: and a really interesting point. I mean, the data that we use uh, in these cases is um, almost perfect. It, it, nine times out of ten, probably more like 19 out of 20, once you show the target, the data, they are no longer arguing about whether or not they did it they know they did it you know they did it liability itself is off the table and now all you're talking about is damages how are we going to resolve this Mm -hmm. uh uh, to go forward and and this is important because uh especially where the target is a decent sized company they always have competent attorneys on their side their attorneys pre-litigation they know once they've seen the data they know what we have on liability but they're also going to look at our copyrights. Sure. They're going to say, do you have the copyrights? And can you go after attorney's fees if you do have to sue us? That's going to make a big difference on the type of settlement we're going to be able to get pre-litigation. Well, the
1: advice they give to their own executive team Yes. Hey, we looked at all these different mechanisms. It feels like these guys actually have protected themselves, so we could lose on these fronts. Exactly. Which and, changes
2: and, yeah. the tenor and the tone yeah. of what's happening. Absolutely. And, and while we do a lot of enforcement, we also have clients who are on the other side of it at times. And that is the first thing we look at, is yeah. the copyrights. Yeah. Are attorney's fees available? And statutory damages, because that's also one of the things that's available. And um, if they are, it, it absolutely changes the advice that we give because now you are looking at a much bigger number.
1: So it feels like your advice is, is fairly straightforward up front, which is make sure you've done your due diligence, make sure you've reached out to competent folks like yourself, you've got your US registrations, you've put some goals and targets together for your program, and then it gets more specific into the individual case of what you're trying to chase and what evidence you have and how you want to handle it. Right. Would that be accurate? A, yeah, exactly absolutely. right. Yep. Yeah, we look at all the different
3: aspects ahead of time before we even put pen to paper and start that first right. season to desist
2: letter. And we also look at the wild cards too because there's always going to be wild cards, right? There's always going to be that company that's not a huge player who hires an attorney who's out of their element, which then becomes the process of, you know, educating that attorney. And, <laughs> and 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 trust me, we have I have literally recently sat across in a negotiation and had an attorney thank us for the great job we had done in educating <laughs> them as to the law, which is always an interesting thing. In and that, that, case, that case did settle. But, um, but also the customer themselves, because some of these companies aren't as big as others. And the wild card is always, um, I can't afford it. I can't afford to pay what you're asking, mm-hmm. and uh, we always liken it yeah. to someone who wants to sell their house and says, "Well, I have I have to sell my house for this much. That's how much I need." It's like, "Well, but the market, right. it yeah. doesn't bear that." That's right. So that's, right. that's great. We'd love <laughs> you know you to sell the house, and, and we get the same thing from some of the companies <laughs> that that we're enforcing against. You know, some of these smaller companies who say, "But but we can't we can't pay that." I.e., that's why we stole the software in the first place. Sure. right, sure. And so you know that that can get creative at times. It, it can get
3: creative and uh, I mean that comes down to sort of the negotiation obviously the appetite of the uh, copyright yep. holder the, the software company and whether they're willing to uh, uh, bend a little bit or really want to just put put it to the test really can they afford yep. it or can't they you can only know so much through public documentation you can request financials from them but a lot of ways we do it is uh, sometimes if we're in that situation, they're desperate to get out of it, they want to do the right thing, but they don't have the money, we could put them on a payment plan at sure. the software companies. And, and based well on that. what you've
0: seen, you know, what's sort of the balance with the vendors that you work with in terms of you know wanting to work with a potential customer, right? It's a potential source yes. of ongoing revenue yep. versus the ones that want to make a point. And, yeah. you know, definitely want to go to litigation, and sometimes they need to. But what's that balance look like these days? Yeah, it's, it's a different
3: approach. It's a different approach uh, to either uh, to either side. Look, if, if, if it's a, a line in the sand, you're not going to get this license, and we want you to stop, and we want you to pay for your infringement, that's one way. But more often than not, we are looking to, uh, believe it or not, uh, keep it friendly. Uh, we, we we like nothing more than to come out the other side of one of these settlements and, and mm-hmm. be able to say, look, at the end of the day, this was kind of a win-win.
1: Yeah, everybody uh, did the right thing.
3: Everybody did the right thing. You now have a legitimate license. You can go about your business, make money using that license, mm-hmm. um, and, and the software company has a new customer. That they can, as, you know, that they can renew a year later, maybe increase seats as our company grows. So we see see ourselves as much as as the compliance enforcement side. We see ourselves a little bit on the
1: on the uh, sales side as well. Sure, and of course, plenty of these cases go smoothly, but there's always cases that don't. <laughs> yeah. In the spirit of the wild card analogy, yeah. can you give us a crazy story of something that's happened? through your years of Yeah,
2: sure so, cases. yeah I so, think, yeah, I think so. So
3: several years ago, we had yeah. a, a situation where uh, uh, a bad infringer uh, ignoring all of our calls to uh, to stop and to come to the table, uh, we filed suit and, uh, and, and and brought the case against them, and, and we encountered a couple wrinkles through the case. First of all, the first attorney they had on the case... Um, sort of saw the data understood what it meant and and did sort of uh bend back bend over backwards to say look liability is 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 clear, clear. here yeah. and, and and admitted to it but then it came down to damages and they didn't want to pay anything we got a lot yeah. of uh, hardship Uh, response if we don't have enough money we don't have enough money
2: yeah and that case was interesting because there was a ton of data points on that case this was not a minor infringement this was multiple multiple seats seats, multiple years and and I have to say John is great at you know emotions were running high because it was a family business, yep. and so you know it, it, it becomes a very personal thing. And one of the one of the people in that business was also going through some. There was a divorce was and a there divorce. was there was yep. some – so in some ways, you know, and John, you know, he's very patient in this respect while always, you know, pushing it forward. You uh, sometimes become a little bit like a therapist in that – in this case, <laughs> had a lot of – had a lot of that, you know, that kind of uh, – I don't want to call it drama but there was a there was a lot of you know personal feelings going on here and and we had to take them through it and and they ultimately they they got rid of that first attorney right John? yeah
3: and here's where the big wrinkle came in a second attorney came in and uh he was he was a little sharper i i gotta say because he determined uh that there was a problem with one of our registrations that we were enforcing Um, It had been published uh, prior to the date that they got the registration instead of in the timely way that we wanted. So we had to then go back and rely on... Other registration.
2: I'm jumping in here yeah. to make the point that we did not file that copyright registration. <laughs> yes. It was another law firm, a general practice law firm, yeah. that yeah. Had, had filed it, and we were able to track down even the emails from the client, and it was, in fact, a, a mistake on, on the law firm side of things, yep. which then had Shame us... Shame on them. I yep. know. Well, you know, when you do everything, do you do it all well? Or when you, when you focus, Jason, <laughs> on a specific thing you get to become you know, kind of experts in and it and when
1: you know it could come back to bite you later right exactly be more right. diligent
2: exactly yeah. and uh, and so this one, you know, kind of going into the craziness. So now we have a copyright registration that we, we're enforcing in this lawsuit that is now not eligible for reaching uh, attorney's fees. We don't have that ability uh, because the registration wasn't filed within the time period that it was supposed to be filed in. So now we're looking at, okay, we need attorney's fees here because that is ultimately – we're now down the road yeah. in this process because it took a while to get them to understand their liability. Mm-hmm. And so we we had to get a little creative, which was okay, because there were other registrations here available, uh, which is why it's important to file for all of your improvements to the software, too. We went back to those registrations, determined they were still in the present code, and that we were able to say, yep, we still have, have attorney's fees eligible to us. Um, and then that, John, you yeah. argued in front of the court, and we, all, we were
3: successful. And we were successful. We had some good case law on our side, but we also had a very thoughtful judge, um, and and he basically got us out of the fire, back into the frying pan, where we could start cooking <laughs> this thing again. Yeah. And, and the case the case settled very shortly after that. Once they realized, once again, uh, once they realized uh, the the scope of their um, the the damages that could that could be awarded we were able to get a, a a very good settlement. Yeah, and
2: one of one of the other things we did in this case too was we brought in the the principals personally on this case. Remember that yeah. we we uh we originally named the company um but it became very clear that the principals here did yeah. have a hand in this infringement. And so we were yeah. able to um bring them in personally as well. Um, which isn't something we always do, and you would think that that might cause harder feelings. But ultimately, through the course of this um, and through there was, a, there was a payment plan kind of set yeah. up, uh, I think that you know, at first they were kind of irate about um, the amount of money and everything else. But the original attorney didn't do Mm -hmm. them a – they did them kind of a disservice because they didn't let them know how much really – Set expectations. Yeah. Yeah. Set expectations properly. And once they started getting through this process, and really I think it turned when they met us during, of all things, depositions, and they sat down because we were taking their deposition and got to meet John and myself, that they realized, okay, these attorneys actually know what they're talking about (laughs) and are trying to be reasonable. You know, they're not like these dragon people that are just, you know, coming Mm -hmm. after us. Sure. Scorched earth Earth Approach. And that really, I think, was a turning point, too, which is interesting, because not often during depositions do you suddenly find the other side no. being like, oh, these guys are actually nice. Yeah. You know, these know, are endearing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So,
3: Usually goes the other
2: way. Usually does.
3: I'll be honest. Yeah. I'm sure those words have ever
0: yeah. been spoken in that order. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although,
2: although I do think it helps that their attorney, remember, he was from New York. And, yeah. he, kept, and he kept pushing that issue. He's like, I'm from New York. you yeah. know, yeah. Uh, And we're like, okay, we get that. <laughs> I'm not sure that's right. Relevant? But. No, no. But I think I think they were a little—they uh, were—they were—they saw us in a different light once they, they, met they did
3: this. It is interesting. Uh, so that case is is as long since settled, and 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 they are almost at the end of their payment plan. And um, I had a reason to be on the phone with one of those principals just a few weeks ago, and it was a it was a very pleasant conversation. And I think Jody's right. I think at the end of the day, they sort of recognized uh, what their lawyers weren't telling them. Sure. Um, and and the, the, the truth of the matter, I'm sure it still hurt a little bit, but I don't think they held it either against us or, or against our client.
1: And unfortunately no. for them, they, they get the proper information too late. Yes. Right. Yeah. Bad, bad advice. Well, thank you both for joining us today. We really appreciate you joining this edition of Piracy Impact. Well, thank you for having us. This yeah. has been a pleasure. Very yeah. fun as always, Jason. All right. Excellent. Take care, everybody. Thanks, guys. This has been episode number 12 of the Piracy
0: Impact podcast from RevuLytics with your hosts, Jason Swan and me, Michael Goff. Special thanks to John McInnes and Jody McLean from McInnes & McLean for joining us, and thank you for listening. We appreciate you subscribing to and rating this podcast wherever you listen. Adding a rating and review helps other software license compliance professionals find our podcast. You can also continue the conversation on social media. Please follow us on Twitter, at RevuLytics, and share your comments and questions with hashtag piracy Impact. You can also learn more about Revulytics and how we've supported customers' compliance programs to generate more than $2.4 billion in new license revenue since 2010 at www.reviualytics.com.